If you join me in Bible study this morning, please open up your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy to chapter 1. Today we pick up the study of Deuteronomy in verse 6. Verse 6 says, The Lord our God spoke to us in Horeb. What's Horeb? Mount Sinai. Where they've been stationed, if you will, for two years at the foot of Mount Sinai as God instructed the people in all that he wanted them to do. They've constructed the items for the tabernacle, put together the tabernacle, and at the end of the two-year period, it's time to journey. So it says, The Lord our God spoke to us in Horeb, saying, You have dwelt long enough at this mountain, meaning you're ready to go forward. His plan is to take them straight to the land of Canaan to give them the land. But we'll see that, well, that's not the way it went down, is it? Verse 7 says, turn and take your journey and go to the mountains of the Amorites. Let's see, let me make sure everybody's muted. Okay. Turn journey and go are all command forms so this is not the lord suggesting that hey if you're ready why don't we think about going the command is let's go turn take your journey and go to the mountains of the amorites to all the neighboring places in the plain in the mountains and in the lowland of the south and on the sea coast, to the land of the Canaanites, and to Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. The river Euphrates is the one that flows down from Turkey through modern-day Iraq. And God was saying all that land from the river Euphrates to the south was all for the children of Israel. Did they go and fill up all that land? They did not. But that was the command to go. And in verse 8, God says, see. What does see mean? Look, believe. See, I've set the land before you. So God says, you don't have to worry about conquering it. I have set it before you. I've made it ready. Just go in there and get it. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and their descendants after them. Where are those promises? First, let's go to Genesis chapter 12. You're right. Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. Then the Lord appeared to Avram, that's Abraham, before God changes his name, and said to your descendants, I will give this land. And there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. What's interesting is that God did not say, I give it to you, Abram, did he? It says to your descendants. Abraham was to be a stranger, a sojourner. In a land that was not his. And then in Genesis chapter 28. Genesis chapter 28 verse 13. 
Genesis 28, verse 13. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. The you here is Jacob. So it was promised to Abraham's descendants. And now to Jacob, it says, this is going to be your land, you and your descendants. Verse 14, also your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. That doesn't mean dirty, it means numerous. You shall spread abroad to the west and the east, to the north and the south, and in you and your seed, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What's going to cause that blessing? It means through Jacob and his descendants will come the Messiah, who will be the Savior of us all. And if we go to Genesis chapter 35, verse 12. Genesis 35, verse 12. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, I give to you and to your descendants after you. I give this land. You know what? This is a foreshadowing. Let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 8. See, I have set the land before you. Go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them and their descendants after them. That foreshadows a return to the land in the day of the Lord. That there will come a day when Israel will be gathered back into the land and they will have it from the river of Egypt all the way up to the Euphrates River, which flows, like I said, from Turkey down through Iraq. Israel's never had all that land. But in the day of the Lord, they will have it. When they start out the day of the Lord, they do not have possession of it all. But then you have the battle called the Psalm 83 war. And Israel then pushes out the borders to where God promised them all the way back in Genesis. And what's one of the primary tenets of Islam? If land has ever been under Islamic control, can they allow anybody from the Jewish or Christian world to control it? No. So that's going to cause the Ezekiel 38 war, the Battle of Gog and Magog, as they try and take back the land. How's that going to go for them? Not so well. So, has the regathering begun back to the land? It sure has. But is it complete yet? Not yet. Let's go to Ezekiel 47, though. Ezekiel 47 takes place after the Lord returns. At the end of the tribulation period, there's a battle of Armageddon and he establishes the kingdom. In Ezekiel 47, beginning in verse 13. It says, Thus says the Lord God, These are the borders by which you shall divide the land as an inheritance among the twelve tribes of Israel. Joseph will have two portions. So this is the Messianic kingdom. The land's again being divided up just as it was when Joshua brought Israel across the Jordan River. Joseph shall have two portions. You shall inherit it equally with one another. For I raise my hand in an oath to give it to your fathers. 
and this land shall fall to you as your inheritance. What does it mean to have an inheritance? It means an eternal possession from generation to generation. In biblical terms, the inherited lands can never leave your family permanently. This shall be the border of the land of the north from the great sea. What's the great sea? Mediterranean. By the road to Hethlon, as one goes to Zadad, Hamath, Barothah, Sabrine, which is between the border of Damascus and the border of Hamath, to Azar Hatikon, which is on the border of Haran. Thus the border boundary shall be from the sea to Hazar Anan, the border of Damascus. And as for the north, northward, it is the border of Hamat. This is the north side. So that's up at the Euphrates River. On the east side, you shall mark out the border between Haran and Damascus, and between Gilead and the land of Israel, along the Jordan and along the eastern side of the sea. This is the east side. And the south side toward the south shall be from Tamar to the waters of Meribah by Kadesh, along the brook to the great sea. This is the south side toward the south. The west side shall be the great sea. From the southern boundary until one comes to a point opposite a moth, this is the west side. Thus you shall divide this land among yourselves according to the tribes of Israel. What about the non-Jewish people? Let's keep reading. It shall be that you will divide it by lot as an inheritance for yourselves and for the strangers who dwell among you and who bear children among you. These are the Gentiles who've gotten saved and grafted themselves in like that wild olive tree of Romans chapter 11, being grafted into the cultivated tree. They shall be to you as native born among the children of Israel, which means what? No distinction. They shall have an inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. And it shall be that whatever tribe the stranger dwells, there you shall give him his inheritance, says the Lord God. Some beautiful promises. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 1.9. And I spoke to you at that time, saying, what's the word saying? Quote. I am not able to bear you. So who's the I? Is this God? No, this is Moses. There were these millions of people all coming to Moses with every little bitty problem. Can you imagine how overwhelmed he must have been? So he said, I alone am not able to bury you. Let's go back to Numbers chapter 11. Numbers chapter 11. The key verse is 14, but we're going to read verses 10 to 16. Numbers chapter 11, beginning in verse 10. When Moses heard the people weeping throughout their families, everyone at the door of his tent, and the anger of the Lord was greatly aroused, Moses also was displeased. So Moses said to the Lord, Why have you afflicted your servant? And why have I not found favor in your sight that you have laid the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I beget them? That you should say to me, carry them in your bosom, 
as a guardian carries a nursing child to the land which you swore to their fathers? Where am I to get me to give to all these people? For they weep all over me, saying, Give us meat that we may eat. I am not able to bear all these people alone. There's the quote from Deuteronomy. Because the burden is too heavy for me. If you treat me like this, please kill me here and now. If I have found favor in your sight, and do not let me see my wretchedness. So the Lord said to Moses, Gather to me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tabernacle of meeting, that they may stand there with you. How many? Seventy. That's the start of what's called the Sanhedrin, which is the assembly of the 70 men to be judges over Israel. Because 70 people could handle the complaints and problems better than one. Yes, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, did make a suggestion. They just didn't happen to include it there. But you're right. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 1. We're up to verse 10. The Lord your God. Notice he doesn't say the Lord my God. It's not that he's excluding himself. He wants to be sure that every single person there understands that the Lord is their individual God. Whether they're from the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or whether they're part of the mixed multitude from all nations and languages of the world. God is the God of all people. So that's why he says, the Lord your God has multiplied you. And here you are today as the stars of heaven in multitude. What's the purpose of verse 10? God promised it and he delivered. You're exactly right. Let's go back to Genesis 15. One of the main themes of Deuteronomy chapter 1 is that when God makes you a promise, God will deliver. Yeah, you don't have to worry about will he be able to or won't he? He will do it. And look at the context of Genesis 15 verses 5 and 6. Then he, that's the Lord, brought him, that's Abraham, outside and said, Look now toward heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he, the Lord, said to him, Abraham, so shall your descendants be. And he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. As we have talked before, that word believed in Hebrew is the verb ha-amin, from which we get the word amen. So God has just promised Abraham, who has no children, no descendants. His heir is one born of his house, Eliezer of Damascus, it says in verse 2. And God says, your descendants will be as innumerable as all the stars in heaven. And Abraham said, you said it. So I believe it. That is the essence of faith. The word faith in Hebrew is imunah, comes from the same verb, and it means God promised it, and you believe that God will deliver, just as he said. So that's the purpose of Deuteronomy 1.10. 
is he's about to tell the people what God's going to do when they go into the land. And he wants them to know that when God makes a promise, God keeps it. They don't have to worry. They don't have to doubt. They simply have to believe it. Deuteronomy 1 verse 11. May the Lord, see how Lord is spelled, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times more numerous than you are and bless you as he has promised you. How many people is Moses talking to? Two million, three million? So when he says a thousand times more, that's more than most people back then could comprehend. If you look at the black chart up here, it shows the world's population. And they don't hit a billion until not all that long ago. So back in the days of the Exodus, there weren't billions of people. There weren't hundreds of millions. This group of three million people or so was a very large contingent. That's why it had frightened Pharaoh in Egypt so much. So verse 11, Moses is blessing the people. He says, because God promised this, you will grow. Not a few times, but a thousand times over. So verse 12, he says, how can I alone bear your problems and your burdens and your complaints? Isn't that an odd thing for Moses to say to the group? Not really. Because remember, God has told Moses he can't enter the promised land. We're in the last few weeks of Moses' life. For the past 38 to 40 years, as they've wandered from place to place, they have relied on Moses. They have looked to Moses. They've complained against Moses, but they've looked to Moses for guidance and leadership. And pretty soon, Moses is not going to be with them. Is he going to leave them leaderless? No. Joshua will be in charge. And then there will be the Sanhedrin under Joshua who will lead the people. So the nation can't look to Moses as he is our God. Because Moses is not God. Moses was simply the intermediary between God and the people. So verse 13 says, Choose wise, understanding, and knowledgeable men from among your tribes, and I'll make them heads over you, meaning rulers. The word head there is rosh. It means head, top, or leader. Somebody to be in charge. And you answered me and said, The thing which you've told us to do is good. So they like the fact that Moses is going to delegate some responsibility to a group of 70. Can you imagine standing in line in the desert sun for how long it'd take to get up to speak to Moses? Be better to have 70 lines, wouldn't it? Make them a little shorter. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and knowledgeable men, and made them heads or rulers over you. That word means rulers. Leaders of thousands, leaders of hundreds, leaders of fifties, leaders of tens, and officers for your tribes. 
Go back to Exodus chapter 18 and let's see how that was done. Right now, Moses is explaining to them what's already been done. But it's so that they will learn to trust the Lord and put their faith in him. Because remember the situation. In just a few weeks, Moses will be dead. Israel will be going across the Jordan River into a new land. They believe that they are wholly righteous and that God owes them. And what does Moses know? They don't come anywhere near the place they think they are. And that if they go into the land with that attitude, that we are sinless and perfect and God owes us, it's going to be a disaster. So that's why he's not softly saying to the people. But he's speaking to the people. He's pounding the podium to get them ready. Are we back in Exodus 18? Verses 17 to 26. Here's where Jethro comes in, as Karen mentioned a few minutes ago. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing that you do is not good. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out. For this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. Now listen to my voice. I will give you counsel, and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people, so that you may bring the difficulties to God. And you shall teach them the statutes and the laws, <clears throat> and show them the way in which they must walk, and the work they must do. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as, here's the qualifications, such as fear God. What does it mean to fear God? It means to be obedient to God. Men of truth. How does God feel about liars? Hates liars. They must be men of truth. Hating covetousness. That is, they can't be in the position for their own personal gain. And place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they shall bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge. So if it's an easy decision, let them make it. Let them bring to you only the worst decisions, the heaviest ones. And you can take them to God then. So, so it will be easier for you, for they will bear the burden for you. If you do this thing, and God so commands you. What was that? And God so commands you. So is Jethro telling him to do it, or to seek God's concurrence? Seek God's concurrence. Don't do anything without the Lord's agreement. Then you will be able to endure, and all this people will also go to their place in peace. <clears throat> so Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. 
So they judged the people at all times. The hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. Oh yeah, it's an unpaid position. But it's a necessary position. The smallest leader has 10 people under him. Not so hard to judge. Then if he can't judge, you go up to the next higher leader and then the next higher leader. It's the way our court system is set up today. You start out at a trial court, then there's a court of appeals, then there's Supreme Court. To elevate it till somebody's able to make a wise decision. Back to Deuteronomy 1. Verse 16. Then I commanded your judges at that time, saying... What's that word saying? It's a quote. Hear the cases between your brethren and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the stranger who is with him. What does it mean to judge righteously? Don't show partiality. Judge it as God has given the commandments, statutes, and judgments. But... If there's a, an Israelite man and a stranger who bring a case to the court, who do you judge for? Who do you give the case to? Whoever's correct. Right. Do not show partiality in judgment. This word stranger here is ger, not going. There are many words for non-Jewish people. A ger, a ger hasha'ar, is a stranger who has been grafted in. It's talking about the mixed multitude. Not to be treated differently than a natural born descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No partiality. Go back to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. Then he said to Avram, which is Abraham before God changes his name, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. That word stranger is also the word ger. It simply means one who's dwelling in another's land. One who is not native born. No partiality. Genesis chapter 15, verse 13. You're welcome. Back to Deuteronomy 1.17. You shall not show partiality in judgment. Wait a minute, didn't we just say that? So why is Moses banging the podium? He knows that with the heart of the people, they're going to go astray. Oh my, does God ever accuse the judges of Israel as showing partiality and taking bribes? Oh yeah. 
You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small as well as the great, which means the poor as well as the rich. Is the rich man always right? No. You shall not be afraid in any man's presence, for the judgment is God's. The case that is too hard for you bring to me, and I will hear it. The Bible has so much to say about the requirement for judges to judge righteously and without partiality. Let's start in Exodus. Exodus chapter 23. Exodus 23, verse 3. And notice God's concern here. You shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. Here the emphasis is not on you might favor the rich, but you might favor the poor. Do you see that in American courts these days? A person spills coffee on themselves and they get a verdict of hundreds of millions of dollars because, well, it's the rich corporation over here versus the little person. Yeah, God said don't do that. The fact that somebody is poor does not make them right and doesn't make them wrong. Go to Deuteronomy 10. Deuteronomy 10, verse 17. A judge is executing the power of God. In fact, God even refers to them in one scripture as Elohim, as God's because they're executing part of his power. So in verse 17, he reminds them, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. What's God's point here? Don't show favoritism. The judges appointed here on earth should judge the way God would judge the situation in righteousness. Deuteronomy 16, verse 19. Deuteronomy 16, verse 19. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, nor take a bribe. For a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. Can you take the bribe and then, well, just decide righteously anyway? God says, no, don't do that. Because you will be tempted to sway the judgment. And God would never do that. Go to 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles. Chapter 19. 
Second Chronicles chapter 19, verse 7. This is Jehoshaphat the king encouraging the judges to judge righteously. He says in verse 7, Now therefore let the fear of the Lord be upon you, meaning you have to answer come judgment day for the judgments you gave. Take care and do it, for there is no iniquity with the Lord our God, no partiality, nor taking of bribes. So come judgment day, the Lord will judge how well you exercise the authority that he loaned you. Proverbs chapter 18, written by King Solomon, who judged many cases himself. Proverbs 18, verse 5. Proverbs 18, verse 5. It is not good to show partiality to the wicked or to overthrow the righteous in judgment. So Solomon's teaching to his sons is that when you're in my position and you get to judge, you make sure you judge righteously. For God is always watching. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 23. These things also belong to the wise. It is not good to show partiality in judgment. Go to the New Testament, to the book of Matthew. It's not Matthew, it's Malachi. My bad. So back up a few pages, just a few pages. The way I write, I should have been a doctor. Malachi chapter 2. Uh-oh, verse 9. Therefore I also have made you contemptible and base before all the people because you have not kept my ways but have shown partiality in the law. Lord speaking to the priests. They hold some people strictly accountable to follow the law but well, you know, if you slip them a little bit of gold in the pocket they'll overlook your sins. Did the church pick up on that in the Middle Ages? With the sale of indulgences? What were indulgences? Ah, uh, you give money to the priests and they give you permission to commit the sin you want. Indulgences. 
We'll make it all right with God. You go ahead and do it. Oh, my. Romans chapter 2. There we get in the New Testament. I knew we got there eventually. Romans chapter 2, verse 11. Romans chapter 2, verse 11. For context, we'll start in verse 5. And verse 11 will drive the point home. Verse 5 says, But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, what does impenitent mean? Do not repent, unrepentant. You are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath. What's another term for the day of wrath? Day of the Lord or judgment day. And revelation of the righteous judgment of God who are rendered to each one according to his deeds. Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth. But obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. These verses that we just read in Romans 2, verses 5 to 11, they let us know, if you want to enter into eternal life, should you be walking in righteousness or sin? In righteousness. Let's go to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, Peter's vision. Verse 34. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality. The partiality he's talking about here is there's no partiality between Jew and Gentile. But in every nation, whoever fears him, what's that mean? Is obedient to God and works righteousness, that's the opposite of lawlessness is accepted by him. Most teachers teach that Acts chapter 10 means it's okay to eat pigs. Is that what this chapter's about? No. It's absolutely not. Yeah, you better be obeying the commandments if you want to be accepted. One of those is thou shalt not eat pigs, lobsters, shrimps, all those other unclean things. Ephesians chapter 6. You certainly would have to. Yep. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 9. 
And you masters, do the same things to them, that is to your servants. Giving up threatening and knowing that your own master also is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. I mean, if you abuse your servants, what do you think is going to happen when you stand before the Lord on Judgment Day? Yeah, yeah. God is not opposed to you having people who work for you. But you better treat them right. Better treat them as you would want to be treated. Colossians chapter 3. Verse 25. After telling us that come judgment day, your reward's going to come from the Lord. It says, but he who does wrong will be repaid for what he has done. And there is no partiality. There's no excuse. Hey, I didn't know any better. I only had 72 copies of the Bible on my shelves, but you didn't expect me to read them, did you, Lord? Yeah, I don't think that argument's going to go over so well. Go to 1 Timothy chapter 5. Verse 21. Verse 21. I charge you before God and the Lord Yeshua the Messiah and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. One of the big problems in the early church in the New Testament period is that the Jews that had gotten saved and the Gentiles who had gotten saved didn't like each other. They looked down upon each other. Well, you were just a Jew. Well, you were just a Gentile. What does God say? Get over it. Without prejudice. Doing nothing with partiality. The argument that I'm better than you is a wrong argument. Book of James, chapter 2. You say, why did we just read 1 Timothy 5, 21? James, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. At the end of chapter 1, I'm going to summarize and give us points for life. There's a reason that Moses is going over these points and why they're so important. James chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly, everybody see that word assembly? Now cross it out. The word is synagogue. They changed the word to assembly because they didn't want you to realize that they were still meeting in synagogues. 
a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should come also one, a poor man, in filthy clothes. And you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place. And say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool. Have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brethren. God has not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him. Did I read that right or did I leave out a word? Ah, that word not is a very important word. Has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith? Meaning he has. The fact that a person doesn't have much money. Some people say, well, they must be accursed of God. They must be bad people. Scripture says, no, that is not the case. God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself you do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. I remember being kicked out of churches because I didn't have a suit coat and tie. And there are certain independent Baptist churches where if you're not wearing a suit coat and tie, you're a heretic. And you're not welcome. <clears throat> Is that what God says? No. So we're not to judge people by whether they have rich things or they don't have rich things. What does the scripture say about Messiah? That birds have nests, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has no place even to lay his head. How many churches today, if Messiah walked through the door, would tell him to get out? He's not dressed right. Book of Isaiah says he has no comely appearance. He wasn't a beautiful man. James chapter 3, verse 17. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure and then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. I mean, you don't have to fake acceptance of people if your heart is true. 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm almost done with this topic. Moses isn't, but I am. 1 Peter 1.17. I'm going to back up a couple verses to 13 and take a running start. Therefore gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober. That word sober means right-minded. Be in your right mind. Don't be crazy. And rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Yeshua the Messiah as obedient 
children. Meaning we should appear to the Lord as obedient children. Not conforming yourselves to the former losses in your ignorance that is before you got saved. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. What's it mean to be holy? Set apart unto God, different from the world, not walking in sin. In what portion of our conduct must we be holy? In all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. That's quoted from Leviticus chapter 11, which is the chapter that says, don't eat pigs, shrimps, lobsters, mice, roaches, etc. <laughs> and if you call on the Father, who without, without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. What's that mean? It means if you know that come judgment day, God is truly going to judge you without partiality, how should you live your life? In holiness. That's why it starts out, be ye holy, for I am holy. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Verse 18. And I commanded you at that time all the things which you should do. What's he mean? All the things. He gave us the commandments. So in the Torah are all of the commandments. So let's look at Deuteronomy 12.32. Deuteronomy 12.32. Are we supposed to add to the commandments things we think God should have commanded and he just wasn't smart enough to? If he'd been as smart as us, he would have included them? No. Verse 32. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. Meaning what? God commanded us what? What he wanted us to do. Did he ask that much of us? Not really. Verse 19. So we departed from Horeb. That was 38 years ago. What have they been doing for the last 38 years? You know what the scripture says? Marching round and round Mount Sinai. Complaining and murmuring. Complaining and murmuring. Yeah. So verse 19, so we departed from Horeb and went through all that great and terrible wilderness, wilderness means desert, which you saw on the way to the mountains of the Amorites, as the Lord our God had commanded us. Then we came to Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea. What does that say? I don't know. So I'm going to set that one aside for a moment. <clears throat> Verse 20, And I said to you, You have come to the mountains of the Amorites, which the Lord your God is giving us. Do 
Why would God give them the mountains of the Amorites? Oh, because of Genesis 15. You're right. Let's go back there. Genesis 15. Because the iniquity of the Amorites finally got so bad that God could not tolerate them in the land any longer. Genesis 15, verse 12. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Avram. That's Abraham before God changes his name. And behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he, the Lord, said to Avram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs. And they will serve them, and they will afflict them four hundred years. Also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. Those are the ten plagues of Egypt. Afterward they shall come out with great possessions. But as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall return here. For the iniquity, meaning the lawlessness of the Amorites, is not yet complete. God would not drive the Amorites out of the land of Canaan until their sins got so bad that they didn't deserve to be in God's land anymore. And God used the time in Egypt and in the desert wanderings to prepare the peoples to come into the land of Canaan and be a people that would worship God and God alone. How'd they do? Not so good. But let's keep reading. Back in Deuteronomy. So verse 20, And I said to you, You have come to the mountains of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. Notice now it's our God, not your God. He makes sure they understand it's Moses' God too. Look, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up and possess it. As the Lord, the God of your fathers, has spoken to you. Do not fear or be discouraged. And every one of you came near to me and said, Let us send men before us and let them search out the land for us and bring back word to us of the way by which we should go up. And of the cities into which we shall come. Is that what God said? No. God said go and take it. And the people said. Not without sending a spy or two first. We got to know what we're getting into. It's important the reason. That Moses is going over this. And how God commanded that people stood back and go. No, no, no. We've got to do this other thing instead. We must send the spies. Go to Numbers 13. And let's read about how disastrous this was for Israel. Numbers 13, verses 1 to 20. When we finish verse 20, keep a finger here because we'll be coming back soon. Numbers 13, verse 1. And the Lord, wait a minute, I have a question out here. Let me see what the question is. Ah, 
Gotcha. Verse 1, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. Why does God tell Moses to do that? Because the people demanded it. And the Lord said, okay. If they're not going to listen, then go ahead and send the spies. Now let's read and see how that turns out. Which I'm giving to the children of Israel. From each tribe of their fathers you shall send a man. Everyone a leader amongst them. So Moses sent them from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all of the men who were heads of the children of Israel. Now these were their names, from the tribe of Reuben, Shemua, the son of Zachur, from the tribe of Simeon, Shaphat, the son of Hori, from the tribe of Judah, Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. Jephunneh was a Kenizzite. Caleb was not born a Jew. He's grafted in. He's part of the mixed multitude. From the tribe of Issachar, Egai, the son of Joseph, or Egal. From the tribe of Ephraim, Hosea, the son of Nun. That's Joshua. God's going to change his name. And it is the son of Nun, not the son of Nun. He did have parents. From the tribe of Benjamin, Palti, the son of Raphu. From the tribe of Zebulun, Gadiel, the son of Sodi. From the tribe of Joseph, that is from the tribe of Manasseh, Gadi, the son of Susi. From the tribe of Dan, Amiel, the son of Gamali. From the tribe of Asher, Sethur, the son of Michael. From the tribe of Naphtali, Nabi, the son of Vophsi. From the tribe of Gad, Guel, the son of Machi. These are the names of the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land. And Moses called Hosea, the son of Nun, Joshua. What does Hosea mean? Salvation. What does Joshua mean? That the Lord will save. The Lord is salvation. Yeah. Why did he change his name? What did he want the people to understand? That the only way you'll be able to do this is through the Lord. Yeah. Verse 17, Then Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up this way into the south and go up to the mountains and see what the land is like, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, whether there are forests there or not. Be of good courage. And bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 1. But keep a finger here. Because we'll be coming back. Verse 23. The plan pleased me well, so I took twelve of your men, one man from each tribe, and they departed and went up into the mountains and came to the valley of Eshcol and spied it out. I want you to know that the valley of Eshcol was not called the valley of Eshcol until the spies go up. What's Eshcol mean? Cluster of grapes. 
Let's go back to Numbers chapter 13 and see why they called it Eshkol. Numbers 13, verses 21 to 25. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin as far as Rehob, near the entrance of Hamat. They went up through the south and came to Hebron. That's the same Hebron we know of today. Ahimon, Sheshi, and Talmai. The descendants of Anak were there. What do you know about the Anakim? They're giants. They're huge. They're like Goliath. Now Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. What's another name for Zoan? Tanis. Ever see the Raiders of the Lost Ark? They go dig in Tanis, that's Zoan. Then they came to the valley of Eshkol, and there cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes. They carried it between two of them on a pole. How many of you have seen a cluster of grapes at the grocery store? Would you need two men to carry it on a pole? No. What does it say about the cluster of grapes? It was huge. Huge. They also brought some of the pomegranates and figs. The place was called the Valley of Eshkol because of the cluster which the men of Israel cut down there. And they returned from spying out the land after 40 days. Could you imagine how the eyes of the people would pop and the faces would shine when they see the fruit coming down that has to be carried on a pole between two men? They've been wandering in a wilderness for two years in a desert. Think of what those grapes would have looked like. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 1. But don't lose your finger out of Numbers 13. Verse 25. They also took some of the fruit of the land in their hands and brought it down to us. And they brought back word to us saying, It is a good land which the Lord our God is giving us. That sounds like a good report. But what's the next word? Nevertheless. Nevertheless, you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. How did that happen? We must go back to Numbers 13, verse 26. We're scared, they're giants. Yeah, wow, wow. What's the point there? What's a giant to God? Nothing. Nothing. So what are they lacking? They're lacking faith. That's exactly right. Numbers 13, verses 26 to 33. Now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation, the children of Israel, in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. Then they told him and said, We went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. When it says it truly flows with milk and honey, does that mean some of the rivers are full of milk and some are full of honey? The answer is no. It's not a desert. It means it's good for agriculture. We can grow food. We can eat. Verse 28 says, Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, 
We saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the banks of the Jordan. What had God said? Go, I have said it before you. And what are the spies saying? We can't, we can't. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. Oh, that's a good report. Let's go. Grab your swords. Grab your spears. Let's hit the trail. Yes, sir. Is that kind of like analogous between when uh, Yeshua said, got the boat said to go to the other side, and he fell asleep, and the storm come up, and they got scared and woke him up? Yeah. And he said, how... You know, oh ye a little faith to him. Yeah, why did he say, oh ye a little faith? Because they didn't believe that he said, go to the other side, and then he went to sleep. They think they're all going to drown, right? Yeah. Does the scripture say Messiah will die by drowning or crucifixion? crucifixion. Therefore, he's not going to drown. Right. So go to sleep. <laughs> yeah, much the same thing. Do you believe God or don't you? Right. And that's exactly right. So Caleb quiets the people down and says, let's go. God said, take it. Let's go. Or we don't. You're absolutely right. So verse 31. But the men who had gone up with him said, We're not able to go up against the people, for they're stronger than we. Yeah, they are stronger than us, but they're not stronger than God. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land, which they spied out, saying, The land through which we've gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak came from the giants. And we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. Don't lose your place here, but let's go back to Deuteronomy. Chapter 1. Remember, as Moses is telling the story, it's 38 years later. The people that refused to go up have all died. And it's their children, their descendants, who are about to cross into the land. There's a reason Moses is going over this. What could the children of Israel had if they had obeyed the Lord? They would have been in the land 38 years earlier. They would have conquered it with ease. Let me not give away the ending. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 27. Well, do 26 in case I didn't. Nevertheless, you would not go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you complained in your tents and said, Because the Lord hates us, he's brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. So let's go back to Numbers 24. And let's see the whining. Numbers 24. Or is it 14? It's 14. I don't want to go to 24. I want to go to 14. Let me fix that. Really should have been a doctor. First one. So all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. 
There's two or three million people crying their eyes out. Because here they are in a desert wilderness where there's no food except that which God provides every day. And there's no water except that which God provides from the rock. And there's this beautiful land with fruit that they have to carry between two men. And we can't have it because we're scared. Verse 2, And all the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. And the whole congregation said to them, If only we had died in the land of Egypt, or if only we had died in this wilderness. Be careful what you wish for. What happens? They're all going to die in the wilderness, save Caleb and Joshua. Verse 3, Why has the Lord brought us to this land to fall by the sword? that our wives and children should become victims. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? God told him to go up and take the land. He set it there before him. He's going to make it easy. And what do they say? No. Oh, we should have just died in the wilderness. Let's go back to Egypt. Why? Did they have such a nice time in Egypt? Or have they forgotten that in Egypt they were crying out to the Lord because of the bitterness of bondage? They've forgotten. Verse 4. So they said to one another, let us select a leader and return to Egypt. Uh-oh. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces. Is that because they're clumsy and they tripped? No, they know God's going to lash out. Before all the assembly, the congregation of the children of Israel... But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh who were among those who had spied out the land tore their clothes. Why? What does tearing the clothes mean? It means great mourning because there's going to be a great death amongst the people. And they spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel saying the land we pass through to spy out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us then he will bring us into this land. And give it to us. The language flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Nor fear the people of the land. For they are our bread. Which means what? We're not going to eat the people. It means they have planted the crops that we're going to take. The fields of wheat. The, the mountains full of olive trees. The vineyards full of grapes. We're going to eat it. Their protection has departed from them. And the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. And all the congregation said to stone them with stones. They don't want to hear the encouraging word. They want to stone Joshua and Caleb. And now you know what happens. Now the glory of the Lord appeared in the tabernacle of meeting before all the children of Israel. So as they go to pick up stones, here comes that brilliant pillar of fire down onto the tabernacle. Yeah, woodshed's coming. So let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Yes, kids, I, I, Deuteronomy in here where the people are complaining, they're not accepting their own responsibility in things. Of course not. And is that not similar... From the very beginning, Adam 
and Eve, where Adam said, this woman that you gave me, you didn't give to me, and I did eat. Yeah, yeah, but it's always somebody else's fault. So we inherited irresponsibility or whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, not an excuse. All righty, let's go back to Deuteronomy. Chapter 34, no, chapter 1, verse 34. There we go. So the Lord heard the sound of your words and was angry. What does that word angry mean? Yeah, a little more than not happy, right? Yes, it's like the flaring nostril of the horses when you're about to get stomped into oblivion. This is why Joshua and Caleb tear their robes because they know the Lord's going to break out. Yes, ma'am. Verse 28, okay. Where can we go up? Verse 28 says... Our brethren have discouraged our hearts, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heavens. Moreover, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. Then I said to them, do not be a terrified, or, terrified or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes up before you, he will fight for you. According to all he did for you in Egypt, before your eyes. Did they all see the ten plagues? They saw them. Did they pass through the Red Sea? They did. Had they eaten manna from heaven? Had they drank the water from the rock? Has God destroyed the Egyptian army? Verse 31, And in the wilderness where you, where you saw how the Lord your God carried you, <coughs> as a man carries his son, in all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet for all that, you did not believe the Lord your God. So what does Moses attribute this rebellion to? A lack of faith. Verse 33, who went in the way before you to search out a place for you to pitch your tents. To show you the way you should go in the fire by night. And in the cloud by the day. Now verse 34. And the Lord heard the sound of your words and was angry and took an oath. When we take an oath, we take an oath on the name of God. On what does God take an oath? On himself, because there is nothing higher. Saying, here are the words the Lord uttered. Surely not one of these men of this evil generation shall see that good land of which I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it. And to him and his children I am giving the land on which he walked, because he wholly followed the Lord. Let's go back to Numbers 24 and Numbers 14 and see how that happened. Verses 11 to 25. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people reject me? See, the Lord knows they're not rejecting Moses and Aaron. He knows they're rejecting him. And how long will they not believe me with all the signs which I have performed among them? Meaning, how many more miracles must God provide in their sight before they'll believe him? I'll strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I'll make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. One thing you've got to know about biblical Hebrew is this is not the only way you can translate that sentence. A better way to translate this is, I might just strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I just might make you a a nation greater and mightier than they. He's letting Moses know, do you want me to just wipe them out and start over with you? He wants to see Moses' heart. Moses said to the Lord, then the Egyptians will hear it. For by your might you brought these people up from among them, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, Lord, are among these people, that you, Lord, are seen face to face, and your cloud stands above them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill these people as one man, The nations which have heard of your fame will speak, saying, Because the Lord was not able to bring this people to the land which he swore to give them, therefore he killed them in the wilderness. And now I pray, let the power of my Lord be great, just as you have spoken, saying, The Lord is long-suffering and abundant in mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression. He by no means clears the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Pardon the iniquity of this people, I pray, according to the greatness of your mercy, just as you have forgiven his people from Egypt, even until now. Then the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. My point earlier in saying that you can translate that sentence just as properly as I might do this, even as I should do this, is where people look at this and say, God changed his mind. And it's not the case. God is testing Moses. And Moses says, God, what would happen to your name if you were to do that? Verse 21, But truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Who says that? The Lord says. Which means eventually the knowledge of the Lord will be around the globe from shore to shore and pole to pole. And of course that's a promise of the Messianic kingdom. goes on in verse 22. Because all these men who have seen my glory and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test now these ten times and have not heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. 
But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit in him and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land where he went, and his descendants shall inherit it. Hmm. Going into the land is a picture of going into the Messianic kingdom. Who of all the people got to go in? Those who were faithful. Those who put their faith into action through obedience. Yeah. We may have to come back to that in a little while. But first, back to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Verse 37. The Lord was also angry with me for your sake, saying, Even you shall not go in there. That's not in Numbers 14. That's in Numbers 20. So let's turn to Numbers 20 without losing your place back in Numbers 14. Yet there's a reason Moses is going back and going over all this that happened. Numbers chapter 20, verses 1 through 12. Then the children of Israel, the whole congregation, meaning even the mixed multitude, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. Who was Miriam? Moses' sister. She was all prophetess. Now there was no water for the congregation. So they gathered together against Moses and Aaron. If you're not familiar with the wilderness of Zin, they're very near where Petra is today. And the people contended with Moses and spoke, saying, If only we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. Why have you brought up the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness, that we and our animals should die here? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is not a place of grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, nor is there any water to drink. They're still in the wilderness. Why didn't they get to go into the land? Because they rebelled. So, of course, the wilderness is not a place of figs or grapes or vines. Verse 6, so Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and they fell on their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the rod, you and your brother Aaron, gather the congregation together. Speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will yield its water. What was he supposed to do? Speak, Speak to the rock. Thus you shall bring water for them out of the rock and give drink to the congregation and their animals. So Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded them. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock and he said to them, Here now you rebels, must we bring water for you out of this rock? Then Moses lifted his hand and struck the rock twice with his rod. Is that what God said? 
and water came out abundantly, and the congregation and their animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe me, to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. A couple points here. God said, speak to the rock, and Moses struck it twice. That doesn't seem like a very big deviation, does it? was big enough that he didn't get to go into the land. But number two, God still provided the water for the people. The water still flows from that rock. If you ever get into Jordan, down near Petra, it's a place called Ein Musa, which means the spring of Moses. But they say it is the very rock that Moses struck twice that still flows clean, cold, fresh water. You can get down in it, you can put your feet in it, but I wish you wouldn't because people drink it. <laughs> and that's the water source today for Petra. When the children of Israel flee to Petra in the middle of the tribulation period, that's where their water comes from. That very same rock. William? Yes, ma'am. I was thinking about that, um, what you just read. The Lord said, because you didn't believe me, to sanctify me in the eyes of the children of Israel. And perhaps that was, I don't know, but that was such a, yes, it was a small thing, they struck it instead of speaking to it. But in the, maybe in the Lord's eyes, that that totally disrespected the Lord. Well, Moses has been trying to teach the people for the last umpty-ump years, you must obey the Lord, and then here he himself does not, which kind of undermines what he's been doing. So this is fresh in Moses' mind when 38 years later he's telling the people of all the sins that committed, and yes, I did it too. And those who refuse to follow the commandments of God do not get to enter. But Let's hold on to that because I'm getting close to the end of the chapter where we do our applied life lessons. So back to Deuteronomy 1, verse 38. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall go in there. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. So Joshua will take over the leadership of Israel on the death of Moses. And Joshua will begin the era of the judges, which will go for a little over 400 years before we come to the time of the first king. And verse 39 says, Moreover, your little ones and your children, whom you say will be victims, who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in there. To them I will give it, and they shall possess it. This is a very important verse. People ask me a lot, do you think there's an age of accountability? And my answer is, yes, I do. Don't know exactly what it is, but this is one verse. Did God hold the children responsible for the sins of the nation? He did not. So those that were 40 and above when they left Egypt, they all die in the wilderness. But those who were children when they left Egypt, they get to come in. God does not impute the sin to them. He does not hold them responsible or accountable. 
also want you to go back to Numbers 24, or is it 14? I'm guessing it's going to be 14, isn't it? Yeah, it's going to be 14. Boy, at least I'm consistent when I make a mistake. Numbers 14, verses 26 to 38. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who complain against me? I have heard the complaints which the children of Israel make against me. Say to them, As I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will do to you. What did they say? God let us die in the land? He says, okay, you asked for it, you get it. The carcasses of you who have complained against me shall fall in this wilderness. All of you who are numbered according to your entire number from 20 years old and above. I think a minute ago I said 40. It's 20 years old and above. Except for Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. You shall by no means enter the land which I swore I would make you dwell in. So if you were below 20 years old, God did not hold you accountable for the sin. 20 years old and above, responsible, you die. Verse 31, but your little ones, whom you said would be victims, I will bring in, and they shall know the land which you have despised. But as for you, your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness, and your sons will be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and bear the brunt of your infidelity, until your carcasses are consumed in the wilderness. According to the number of the days in which you spied out the land, forty days, for each day you shall bear your guilt one year, namely forty years, and you shall know my rejection. I, the Lord, have spoken this. I will surely do so to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me. In this wilderness they shall be consumed, and there they shall die. Now when the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation complain against him by bringing a bad report of the land, those very men who brought the evil report about the land died by the plague before the Lord. I mean, they don't get to wander another 38 years. But Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh remained alive of the men who went to spy out the land. Keep your finger here, we're probably coming back. But there's one more cross-reference that also causes me to believe that there is an age of accountability, and that's in the book of Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. Verses 14 to 16. They're words you know well. Isaiah chapter 7, verses 14 to 16. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good, for before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, 
the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. So Isaiah says here, there is an age below which the child does not know to refuse the evil and to choose the good. So when the rapture comes, do I think the little children will be left behind? No, I don't. I think they will go. Can I prove it? Ask me the month after the rapture. Okay. Back to Deuteronomy chapter 1. We're coming close to the end. Verses 41 to 44. I'm not sure we did 40, so let's do 40. But as for you, turn and take your journey into the wilderness by the way of the... Notice it says Red Sea. It's not Red Sea. It's Sea of Reeds. Yom Suf is the Sea of Reeds. Reeds meaning papyrus. Verse 41, Then you answered and said to me, We have sinned against the Lord. We will go up and fight, just as the Lord our God commanded us. So after God has said, You shall not go up, turn aside, and wander in the wilderness, they go, No, I don't think we'll do that. We're going to go take the land. Well, once God says, do not do it, how well do you think it's going to go when they try? And when every one of you had girded on his weapons of war, you were ready to go up into the mountain. And the Lord said to me, tell them, do not go up nor fight, for I am not among you, lest you be defeated before your enemies. What did God tell him in no uncertain terms? I'm not going with you. If God does not go with them, can they defeat the enemy? Mm-hmm. Answer is no. If God does not go with us, can we defeat Satan? The answer is no. Verse 43. So I spoke to you, yet you would not listen, but rebelled against the command of the Lord and presumptuously went up into the mountain. What does presumptuously mean? You did it on purpose because you wanted to, even though God said no. How'd that work out? Let's see verse 44. And the Amorites who dwelt in that mountain came out against you and chased you as bees do and drove you back from Seir to Hormah. Yep, let's go back to Numbers 14, verses 39 to 45. Then Moses told these words to all the children of Israel, and the people mourned greatly. And they rose early in the morning, went up to the top of the mountain, saying, Here we are, and we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised, for we have sinned. And Moses said, Now why do you transgress the command of the Lord? For this will not succeed. Do not go up, lest you be defeated by your enemies, for the Lord is not among you. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites are there before you, and you shall fall by the sword, because you've turned away from the Lord. The Lord will not be with you. But they presumed to go up to the mountaintop. Nevertheless, neither the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord nor Moses departed from the camp. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who dwelt in that mountain came down and attacked them and drove them back as far as Hormah. Back to Deuteronomy. Verse 
verses 45 and 46. Then you returned and wept before the Lord. They got whipped badly. They come back and whine to the Lord. How come this happened? But the Lord would not listen to your voice nor give ear to you. What does the scripture say about one who will not listen to the commandments of God? What's his prayer? An abomination as Proverbs chapter 28 verse 9. But it hadn't been written yet. Doesn't matter. Principle was still in effect. So you remained in Kadesh many days according to the days that you spent there. All right. Let's get down to it. We have 10 minutes to summarize. Let's go to Romans 15 verse 4. Romans 15 verse 4. Romans 15, verse 4. Romans chapter 15, verse 4. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning. So at the end of each chapter, or in between if, if it breaks to different topics, I want to take a life lesson. The first lesson I want is to turn to Proverbs 28.9. Proverbs 28.9. You guys all know it. But I want you to turn to it. See it with your own eyes. One who turns away his ear from hearing the Torah. Even his prayer is an abomination. So they refused to hear God's commandments. And yet they went crying to God, wanting his blessing. And it said, what? The Lord wouldn't hear it. We also know John 9.31 in the New Testament gives us the same thing. So let's look at John 9.31. John 9.31 says, Now we know that God does not hear sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. So look also at Psalm 89. Psalm 89. Verse 34. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. God commanded them, do not go up. I will not go up with you. But they thought that, well, if we just go up, God will have to change his mind. Did God have to change his mind? No, they got whooped in a big way. Wayne? Yes, sir. Um, I must have written that down wrongly. What was that one the Lord will not hear him? I've written the reference down wrongly. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 9. 28, verse 9. Thanks. You bet. Let's look at Numbers chapter 23. Numbers chapter 23. 
Numbers chapter 23. Verse 19. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. When God says, do you not do it, you better not do it. What do we learn in 1 Kings chapter 13 about the prophet who believed that God would change his commandment? God does not change his commandment. And he got eaten. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. If God establishes a principle like this, that if you will not hear God's commandments, he will not hear your prayer. And if God does not change... And if God does not alter the word that has gone out of his lips, then should we expect a different result today? If I'm sitting in the gardens, worshiping the idols, eating my ham sandwich, praying to God to bless me, should I expect him to bless me? No. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands for how long? Forever. Forever. God's word does not change. So when you hear a preacher preach from a pulpit that the law has been abolished, don't follow those commandments anymore. Do you listen to him or to God? Listen to God. Go to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13. Verse 8. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. Yeshua the Messiah is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was in the beginning with God. He was God. Has he changed from that point till now? Did he come 2,000 years ago to do away with God's commandments so that we could rape, murder, and kill? The answer is no, he did not. So, let's establish the principles. <clears throat> that we need to derive from this. The first is, disobedience is in God's eyes a lack of faith. And sin has consequences. The disobedience at the time of the spies caused Israel to wander in the wilderness for 38 years that they did not have to spend. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 3. In God's eyes, disobedience is a lack of faith. Hebrews chapter 3, we'll start in verse 17. Are we ready? Now with whom was he that is the Lord angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned? 
whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. So this tells us that God says, why did they disobey? They disobeyed because they did not believe. So disobedience to God indicates a lack of faith. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It's not the only place here that he says it. 1 Corinthians 6. Verses 9 to 11. What are the consequences of sin? Do you not know that the unrighteous, what's another term for unrighteous? The lawless will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of our Lord Yeshua and by the Spirit of our God. So can we as believers walk in these sins? No. Because those who walk in these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Go to 2 Corinthians 12. Second Corinthians chapter 12. I'm going to run out of time, aren't I? Second Corinthians chapter 12, verses 20 and 21. Is Paul talking to a Jewish congregation or a Gentile congregation? Gentile congregation. 1 Corinthians 12, 2. You know that you are Gentiles. So 2 Corinthians 12, 20 and 21 say, For I fear lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I wish, that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish. Lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults. Lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced. I wanted to bring these out specifically because there are people who say, well, 1 Corinthians 6 is talking about unbelievers. That once we come to faith in Messiah, then we can do those things and it's okay with God. But what does this tell us? Nope. And I've run out of time. So we will pick up next week, Lord willing, in the very last verse of chapter 1, continuing with the what should we learn from this chapter.